The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome to Cars and Culture in episode 115. I'm your host, Jason Stein. It's one thing to own the microphone across continents and become a broadcast authority, thanks to your own racing chops and a history of passion for cars and culture. But it's entirely another level to hold the microphone at one of the most prestigious car events on the planet. Amanda Stratton has known Pebble Beach, but this year, Pebble Beach got to know Amanda a lot better. For the first time in a long time, Pebble Beach passed the Master of Ceremonies microphone to a new voice, but a familiar voice in Amanda Stretton. Perhaps not as well known to North Americans who watched Derek Hill do the job for years, but certainly well known to Europeans who know Amanda from her days broadcasting racing and sports in the UK and Europe. And Amanda herself is a show of elegance like the Pebble Beach Concours d'Elegance. And she's a show of fury. Elegance in the way she comports herself, well-raised in the right circles, and fury in her passion behind the wheel. She gets that passion honestly, having grown up around vintage car racing as a result of her father being a competitor. She's also a spokesperson for Jaguar e-racing. She hangs with legendary designers in her spare time. And as Pebble Beach chairman Sandra Button said, her international car industry prowess and at-ease British personality will win the hearts of audiences around the world. She's a longtime friend who immediately feels like part of our Pebble Beach family. In many ways, Pebble Beach and Amanda are a perfect match. The daughter of British automobile collector and historic racer Terry Cohn, she grew up in London. At age 13, she raced motorcycles. In 2001, she became the first ever female driver to complete in the Ascar Mintex Cup, where she finished in sixth place. Two years later, she entered the first ever female team in the British GT Championships and was the first British female to race in the FIA Championships. A few years later, she competed at Le Mans. This year, she was handed one of the most symbolic microphones in America or around the world. Today, she's on the other end of our microphone. The new MC of Pebble Beach in a conversation that took place just prior to this year's event in Monterey, California. On the eve of her big moment, we find her charming, witty, and likable. Amanda Stretton on Cars and Culture. Hello, I'm Amanda Stretton, and this is Cars and Culture with Jason Stein. For those listeners in the UK and for the followers of European sports car racing, even IMSA's British coverage, she is extremely well-known. She's the voice. But oh, how significant to now be the voice of an entirely new realm, <laughs> the 72nd Pebble Beach Concours d'Elegance. Welcome in, Amanda. What a pleasure to have you. What a pleasure to have you on these shores doing what you're going to be doing coming up next. I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much. So before this, though, you recently celebrated a significant birthday. <laughs> wow. Did you celebrate it well? I did. Do you know, <laughs> behind, <laughs> behind the screen, uh, there is happy 50th birthday banners all over the place. <laughs> Congratulations. Yes, it, thank you very much. I can't believe I'm 50. Um, I honestly, uh, for many, many years, I have felt 26. I felt I never grew up mentally or physically beyond 26. More recently, I feel more in my early 30s. So I think I have aged just a little bit. But I look at myself now and think, 
am I supposed to know what I'm doing? <laughs> am I supposed <laughs> to have a plan? Am I supposed to have it all sorted? Because um, I think, well, I hope uh, it's what keeps you young and hungry for the next thing, the idea that, uh, yeah, you're never too yeah. old to take up a new challenge. Exactly. And and you have a new challenge in front of you. But I think the answer to, to answer your own question is, no, you're not supposed to have everything all sorted out. And when opportunities like this come along, you have to embrace them, right? Because this oh, is a whole new challenge. Completely. Do you know when Sandra Button and I first had a discussion about Pebble, um, she was here in the UK at an event that I was hosting. And I think she quite liked my style. Um, I've known Sandra for many years, but I've never, to my knowledge, um, been presenting when Sandra was in the audience. So I'm not aware that she'd ever seen me before in that capacity. Um, and she came up to me afterwards and she said, we need to talk. And I said, yes, I'm in. <laughs> it wasn't, I didn't know what I was in, but I was absolutely signed up before I had any of the details. So it wasn't till a good few months later that I think um, the situation with Derek was clear that he wanted to take a little bit of a step back. And uh, she and I met and we had a discussion and I could not believe my luck. So Amanda's international car industry prowess and at ease British personality will win the hearts of our audiences around the world is what Sandra said during that Thank announcement. She. she is a longtime friend of ours who immediately feels the part feels like part of our Pebble Beach Concours family. That's what she said in the announcement that you will be taking the microphone in hand at the Pebble Beach Concours d'Elegance. I mean, that is so kind of her. I've, I've had an association with Pebble sort of directly and indirectly for decades. My father um, was a huge fan um, in the 90s. He showed, um, I think, four or five times um, bringing cars over from the UK. Um, I think he's he had a couple of trips up the ramp. I think he had a second and a third during that time. Um, but he loved it. He absolutely loved it. Sadly, I never got to come with him. Um, but I did come in 2014 when I was actually showing a car and I was lucky enough to win the class that year. So, so far, my Pebble experience has been 100% success. I just hope very much it's going to remain that way um, this weekend. So how did it, how did all of this come to be? How did, how did it, how did you get to a place of actually having Sandra ask you to do what you will do, which is to effectively host this program? <laughs> well, it's a long story. I never had any ambition to get in, to work in cars. That's not to say I didn't have an interest. It's just simply when I was young, um, which is a long time ago now, as we have identified, um, <laughs> <laughs> there were simply no jobs for women in cars. Um, I particularly love motorsport. Um, and when I was younger, you know, that, that was where my interest lay. But unless I was a mechanic or an engineer, there was nothing obvious for me to aspire to. So, in fact, I did my degree in history of art and architecture um, in Manchester. I worked at Christie's um, for about four years through my degree um, and during my year off to learn the business. And the sort of idea was that I was going to be their first female auctioneer. Hmm. But I was busy racing. I was having quite a lot of success. And of course, this is pre-internet. So this uh, required this, this, any success that you had 
if you were lucky, you got an inch or two in a monthly publication. Um, you know, you you were not. It was very hard to get exposure. Um, and my break came when one of the commentators for the historic racing that I was actively involved in, um, his son, who was a um, owned a production company, had won the right to broadcast the British Formula Three Championship which was um, and is the, the highest ranking single-seater series in the UK before you go into international racing. And Channel 4, who were the broadcaster, um, said to them they wanted a female presenter who knew about motorsport, and there was no, no one. So Neville said to Richard, um, I think you should uh, give this girl Amanda a go. I think she'd be quite good. And... I did a screen test and I had absolutely no clue what I was doing, um, but an awful lot of enthusiasm. Anyway, I got the job and that's what began. I turned my job down at Christie's, which my mother absolutely despairs over. I think <laughs> only recently has she said, actually, she's very Still proud of my, yeah, my career choices. Um, but she was not a big fan of, of me making that decision at the time. Um but that is what started me off on this sort of parallel uh, journey, if you like, of racing on the one hand and broadcasting on the other. And the broadcasting has really encompassed both uh, racing, modern, historic, um, but also an awful lot in the modern car world as well. So um, I've, I've been incredibly lucky. It was never anything I, I knew what I was going to do. And so, yeah, I was busy. Broad, I was busy hosting an award ceremony in uh, in London, um, and that's where Sandra saw me work and said she'd like me to come along and have a chat. Amazing! And while you're well known in Europe as that motorsports and television presenter, for many Americans seeing you on the Pebble Beach Concours ramp with a microphone in your hand, it will be a first time probably for them. Probably a, a little bit of a of an introduction to exactly who you are, right? Exactly, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I have worked. I have um, uh, back in the sort of again back in the sort of late nineties, I think. Um, I was working for Motors, uh, Speed, Speed. It was, um, and did a little bit with Fox as well. But unfortunately, um, back then, I was offered a fantastic job with Fox um, in two thousand and three. But my daughter, my first child, was born in the November of 2002. And I said to them at the time, I said, I'd love this job. I was, it was going to involve sports cars and NASCAR, which, I mean, for me, that was just going to be heaven um, and a lot of travel. But I said, I'd love to take the job. But until my baby is born, I don't feel that I'm in a position to do so um, I've, I've never done this before. I've never been a parent before. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how I'm going to juggle the two. And so I had to turn it down. It went some, to someone else. Um, and sadly, that opportunity then passed. And I never really got the opportunity to come back to America. So, you know, one of the things I love about the Americans and their approach to, to automobiles is this massive passion and enthusiasm for car culture, both modern and historic. Um, and I think it's absolutely phenomenal. And I am very passionate. I think, I mean, I hope that's going to come across. I think it probably will when I'm up on the ramp um, at the weekend. But yeah, I'm very passionate. And so it just gives me such, I don't know, 
I'm so excited, really, to be a part of it. I feel that um, I've been having to keep my keep my enthusiasm a little bit tempered here in Europe, but over in America, I can shout it from the rooftops. <laughs> and there's nothing that personifies cars and culture more than Pebble Beach, right? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think, and I think, I, I mean, I don't know, I can't speak for how uh, people in the States view Pebble, but certainly as a European, it is very much considered one of the blue ribboned events of the year. Um, you know, people talk about it, friends here in the UK who um, are wishing me well and uh, are going to be, you know, watching my progress. Um, many of them can't come this year for one reason or another. Um, but everybody is saying, it is just amazing. I'm so happy for you. You are going to have the most amazing time. Um, it is very much considered, as I say, one of the, the pinnacle events of the season. And it does. I mean, I love the way, um, I love the way the event is curated. I love the classes and the cars that we've got uh, coming this weekend. But I also love how the manufacturers, the modern manufacturers really embrace their heritage because I've always said, you can't really contextualize, you can't properly understand what is happening today in the automotive industry unless you have a really good understanding of what has gone before. So I think it's really important that you know, heritage is embraced just as much as what is going on in the future and where we may be traveling. Well, it's interesting how Pebble has transformed. It's become a, a spot for manufacturers to highlight what is to come. In fact, uh, many launches will take place this weekend. Maserati, Pininfarina, uh, just a a couple to name, but also the 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 presence in the sense that there's a celebration of the history of those um, of those brands that are there. Uh, Seventy five years of Porsche, sixty years of McLaren. Amanda McLaren will be on this program talking about those 60 years you you really this year's pebble is is really tied around some historic moments talk a little bit about those mm. highlight some of those for me well obviously we've got the porsche anniversary i mean now porsche have a have a i mean it's, it's a car brand unlike really any other because i mean the only other brand i can really think is ferrari this brand that has sort of reached the absolute pinnacle of motorsport and yet had this road car presence. But the difference with Ferrari is it's always stayed um, very high end. Porsche have got a, a, an expanse of, of product where you don't have to be super wealthy to have an entry level car. And I think that's that's really one of the unique things about Porsche. So obviously we're going to be celebrating that this weekend. And as you say, McLaren as well, fabulous, um, you know, fabulous heritage. I am... I mean, I love I love all racing. Um, there's no no way to hedge that to, to beat around the bush on that one. But I my big passion is sports cars. I've always loved sports cars, and so you know to be to be looking at McLaren this year, their amazing history in sports cars in Europe in the States. I cannot wait. I'm so excited. Hmm. Some interesting other uh, examples that will be there: Mercedes Benz. Mm. Uh, and Bugatti have uh, have tied for the the number of awards that they have won at Pebble, and this year Mercedes Benz I think bringing the S the SS the SSK do hey, I have that right? they're coming on that that's right that's right yep so we do uh, again yeah fantastic cars with some fantastic history and I mean it it's almost impossible to know where to start looking um, when when I get onto the onto the lawn I wish I had more time. I suspect I'm going to be quite busy, but um, yeah, I plan to get myself 
involved in every single aspect as soon as I can, because I think otherwise there's going to be so much you're going to miss. Um, it, there, there is, as you say, just so much to see. Let's get back to your history a little bit. Your father uh, was an automobile collector and historic racer, Terry Cohn. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, you found yourself on a motocross bike at age 13. <laughs> yeah. What did mom right. and dad think about that? <laughs> well, <laughs> mom. Okay. So I was, again, when I started on my motocross bikes, neither of my parents were, or my father was not involved in cars at that point. Um, my parents had recently got divorced. Um I happened to be at a school which was a very sport-heavy school. Um, I was playing tennis, um, and for one reason or another, I had to stop playing tennis for a period, and they said to me, right, go find a sport. They gave me a list, and there was archery, lacrosse, badminton, swimming, hockey, basketball, you name fencing. I mean, you name it. And I saw motocross and thought, I actually haven't got a clue what this is, but I think it's going to be fun. Um, So I forged my parents' signature um, with their consent and (laughs) bought my friend's brother's bike and overalls and helmet um, with my terms allowance. And off I went racing bikes. Um, In the meantime, a little while later, my father started uh, buying what I called wedding cars. I think you can sort of imagine. So these were like old. Voice silk, silk exactly. I mean, which quite frankly at the time just left me cold, but um, yeah, they were just big, lumpy things. Um, I shouldn't say that. (laughs) It was, it was, I mean, I actually remember a good description. It was lumpy cars, it was a yeah, but it was slow, you know, it was very smelly as well. I mean, I remember his first car vividly, it was a Fiat. Um, I can't tell you what kind of Fiat because it came and went when I was about 13, 14 years old. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was very smelly <laughs> in the back. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, so he, um, yeah, he, he got himself involved in that. And one thing and another led to another. He started collecting more and more and more um, and actually became, you know, a very well-known collector. And in fact, many of the UK dealers, um, many of them cut their teeth, either working with or alongside my dad, unfortunately, he died um, when I was 26. He got cancer. Um, and it's a shame because he never really got to see where I ended up. But I know he would be very proud. My mother, on the other hand, <laughs> used to say, we haven't spent all this money on your education for you to be a grease monkey. <laughs> um, so my father was very much encouraging my journey into the world of cars and motorsport. My mother was, as I say, less enthusiastic at the time. Well, the grease monkey eventually became the first ever female driver to compete in the ASCAR Mintex Cup. Oh, right? yeah, that was ASCAR. So those were those were um, stock cars. It was an oval series uh, that was brought over to the UK, well, into Europe, when the Rockingham Motor Speedway and Lausitzring in Germany were built. They realised they needed to have some sort of homegrown championships. So we had this uh, this stock car series, which, oh, my goodness, was fun. Is that where this, this notion of you potentially becoming a Fox announcer for NASCAR and saying that that was heaven, that... that- no, actually, the announcer thing had been before that um, because uh, that was 
that must have been two, that was 2002 and um Ascal, the same time, I guess. yeah it was a year or so later you're a big stock oh, car person yeah I, I love it I just love it as I say I'm it's it's sports cars endurance racing is is where my real passion is and it's because I love the individual challenge that you as the driver have but I also love the fact that it's actually a team effort um unlike many single seater sprint races um where you just it, it it generally comes down to money um money equals speed in sports cars and Le Mans is the sort of typical and Sebring and any of the uh, Daytona any of these um these sort of much longer distance you need luck you need teamwork and you need everybody pulling together and unless you have all of that you're not going to win and you're not going to finish yeah you're you're a serious driver right oh <laughs> i mean you've competed, um, you've competed in le mans i have yeah in 2006 i um, i did yeah Oh, 2008 was Le Mans. Um, 2008. I raced, okay. Yeah, I did. Um, I raced. I mean, again, you know, Le Mans was my dream. So when I was racing, you know, it, when I first started driving cars, um, racing uh, pre-war Fraser Nash, you know, and, and so when I really first started, I would watch Le Mans, and you know, it's like watching, um, you know, your favorite football team or your you know, favorite basketball team and say, I want to be there. You, you say it, but you don't actually think it's really going to happen. Um, and as I say, you know, when I was very young, women just really were not particularly in, in, in the horizon. There was nobody to look at and say, well, if she can do it, I can do it. So, yeah, when I finally raced at Le Mans, it was it was my Everest, you know, that was my, my moon moment. Um, it was an experience. Um, I'd actually broadcast at Le Mans for oh, probably seven or eight years running up to that point. And I thought I knew Le Mans well. Um, I had seen it, you know, when, I, when you're in the pit lane and you're seeing the highs and lows of teams, drivers, you know, you see accidents, you see mechanics working on crashes. You see drivers despair. You see drivers elation. I thought I knew how tough it was going to be. Nothing prepared me for what it was actually going to be like driving. It was a it was a very difficult experience, but one that I look back on and I'm so proud to have actually done. Sadly, we didn't finish. We had an engine problem, um, and and you know there was a lot of heartbreak. But I can say I have started the race. I I raced on that amazing track, um, and I was racing in an LMP1 car. So there's. Wow. Uh, yeah. yeah. Not many experience. of us. <laughs> no, not many at all. No, I, I had my first uh, opportunity to attend Le Mans this year during the 100th anniversary and um, uh, talked to many of the NASCAR team members who, of course, had their own prototype on the track this year for the first time. And I think they expressed the same um, feelings that, that and emotion that mm. you do about the experience of how the challenge of it. And of course, you know that 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 team um, led by uh, IMSA's John Doonan, uh, really uh, met the challenge of finishing. And that was, um, that, I mean, an accomplishment. I mean, it is an accomplishment. Le Mans, you, you know, you can have all the luck. Sorry, you can have all the, all the budget in the world, but you need luck as well. Because and unless you have the two, you won't finish. Um, 
too many times we've seen, you know, cars who you think who who go into the weekend as the absolute front runner. Everybody thinks they're going to walk away with it. And maybe by no fault of their own, they get caught up in somebody else's incident. You know, it is by no means a given and it is heartbreaking. You know, when I came away from Le Mans, I stopped racing for 18 months because I thought the time and effort that I have given this, I have sacrificed my kids. I mean, I have barely seen my family for the last four or five months. Um, I'm never going to have that time with my children again. Was it worth it? And you you question, you know, you think this was my dream. And I'm you know, in hindsight, you know, 15 years, 10 years later, I can look, I can look back and say, yes, it was worth it. But at the time, you really question. It makes you question um, a lot because you think, God, I've spent the last decades of my life aiming for this. Um, I finally got there and now I've walked away and it was actually quite heartbreaking. So it is you go through this plethora of emotions, highs and lows. Um, and challenges as well. I mean, I had some, I had a hilarious incident on the track, which I can now laugh at. At the time, I was not laughing um, because we'd had this engine issue that was ongoing. Everybody in the team was very distracted. Um, the guy whose job it was to take your helmet and clean it up, put some more tear offs on it, um, change your visor over, forgot to change my visor. So I went out for my first night stint with my black visor oh. on. Oh. So you can imagine what like that driving was like. with tinted windows at night. Driving down Mulsanne. <laughs> I, I realized because it's the, the pit lane and up to Dunlop is very well lit. Um and I did I was thinking this this doesn't feel right. There's a bit something a bit strange going on. Um and it wasn't until I went under Dunlop um that I realized what the problem was. And I had to open my visor and tilt my head back and look up out under the gap for the corners. And then tuck my chin down so that the wind didn't blow straight into my eyes um, when I was going down the straights. But, you know, I was in a prototype with no roof. So when I told them, um, I did use some fairly fruity language. (laughs) In 2004, you became the first British woman to win an international long distance event at Spa. Mm. You, You raced at Spa. You're a fierce defender of talent, regardless of gender, hitting the track. What up-and-coming driver have you seen that's captured your attention, and who should we really pay attention to? Oh, God, that's a tricky one. I mean, these days, there are so many. Um, oh, goodness, that's caught me off. I couldn't I couldn't say. I mean, there are so many. I think, I mean, I, I'm, yes, regardless of gender, but one of the things that I think is so brilliant now is that we have got a lot more women taking part. Yes. Um, We've talked to Samantha Tan on this program, who is working yeah. through formula, formula racing it's, and, has, and has caught the attention of Stephanie Kelly. Well, and I think even though, I mean, I do think some of the girls, it's a shame W Series didn't get off the ground um, because that was great. But I think Jamie Chadwick is probably a talent that is maybe, maybe not getting the opportunities she deserves um mm-hmm. you know she was so dominant in that against some very good drivers um you know she won every every season um she, you know she was a championship winner um i would i want to go for jamie she's mm. uh yeah good good very very good driver 
After the break, I'll continue my conversation with Pebble Beach Master of Ceremonies and international broadcaster, Amanda Stratton. And to see my interview with Amanda, go to the Carson Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see more than 110 interviews. The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world in America. The rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome back into Cars and Culture. I'm your host, Jason Stein. Now the continuation of my conversation with Pebble Beach Master of Ceremonies and international broadcaster, Amanda Stratton. And to see my interview with Amanda, go to the Carson Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see more than 110 interviews. Let's talk a little bit about racing. Um, there, there's We've talked a lot on this program about the effect and the influence and the growth of Formula One, um, of course. And, and we've had many NASCAR drivers and owners on this program as well. Is racing at a point that it's the most healthy in terms of public awareness today? Is that your your view of it? Well, do you know, I think what Drive to Survive has done for Formula One right. is unprecedented. Um, because it is, it, it's, it, it, yeah, it has, it has really brought it to a global audience. Whereas I think it, it was slightly, I don't know, less popular. Um, I have friends now who have zero interest in racing, who have watched Drive to Survive and now have a bit more of an interest. They won't necessarily watch it, but they will watch the next season of Drive to Survive. <laughs> right. They're not um, watching the racing at all. <laughs> no, exactly. They're more interested in the stories. But do you know what? I don't think it matters. Um, and I think, I mean, I think racing is, has, I believe, is hugely important for um the development of cars because it is the natural testbed of new technologies. There's no doubt about it. Some filter through, some obviously don't. Um, obviously, with the sort of moves that we're seeing now towards alternative fuels, alternative propulsion, electrification, um, it's an interesting one because, you know, Formula One's engine um, uh, rules actually go beyond you know the the ban on internal combustion engine sales that we've got here you know in the UK and Europe so mm-hmm. it is it's a slightly difficult one but personally whereas i am a fan of electrification and i think it has its place i actually also think it's not a one size fits all solution and i very much hope that um what formula 1 is doing and people like paddy low um you know who's next formula 1 um engineer at, what they're doing with alternative fuels and biofuels is going to mean that the options available to people um, for uh, propulsion um, is actually going to be less restrictive. It's We're not just going to say everybody has to go electric. There will be some other internal combustion engine choices just with alternative fuels. Yeah, And I yeah. think racing is where so much of that actually comes from. You know, it's where the, where the ideas come from, um, uh, you know, you look at lubricants, you look at um, composites, you look at aerodynamics, lightweighting. I mean, I mean, so the list goes on. It all starts in racing because that is the competitive arena. Um, and that's where all the bright brains go and sort of exercise their ideas. You've been in and around the vintage automotive scene for a long time now. What trends have you seen that surprise you, Amanda? 
how much it costs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when I start, I it's a sad. I mean, on the one hand, it's sad. On the other thing, it's brilliant. When I started, it was um, much, much more accessible. Um, you could rock up with your own car, which you could drive. You had tools in the back, um, spare wheel. You could, you know, you could pretty much spanner your own car, um, pack everything up at the end of the, the race and, and drive yourself home. That was possible these days. Um, and it's partly because manufacturers and OEMs have really sort of harnessed the relevance of their heritage fleets that I think costs have started to escalate. Um, but on the other hand, you know, racing is dangerous. And it was perhaps a little bit um, Heath Robinson in those early days. Um, you know, now it is it's a much more serious business. So it has grown. Um, and with the growth obviously comes more money um the the people who are now buying cars and competing whether and i use the word competing with a small c if you like so not necessarily just competing on track but coming to things like concours events mm-hmm. um you know it, it used to be i think a little bit more um i don't know it was just it felt a lot smaller um globally it, it the, the reach is now so much bigger that you get people from all walks of life, um, you know, and of course, cars are a great investment. So you get people who, who may not necessarily fully appreciate and understand the history. They haven't bought necessarily for the history. But once you get involved in the culture, you suddenly find this is a really vibrant, interesting, wonderful place to be. So they've come at it from via a different route. Are you of the mind that young people aren't interested in cars old cars no old cars no i mean i think it changes um and i think um (laughs) yeah it it very much changes i mean i remember looking at those very very sort of almost veteran cars of my dad's and for me they did nothing um funnily enough as i've got older i've actually begun to appreciate them an awful lot more um but at the time i was just interested in speed and looks um and and i'm thinking now when i'm sort of 16 17 it it was about speed and looks um but but what i've noticed is you know people who are my generation are now looking back to the sort of 60s and it's those cars that are really sort of engaging and piquing people's interests um you know whereas whereas i think maybe pre-war you maybe have to get a little bit older to then look back and actually fully appreciate because I know that's certainly what I'm doing um I mean funnily enough my kids um we have we have a sort of standing joke which is terribly inappropriate but it's our way of making light of these things um the first thing they say when I get anything they like is can I have it when you die um (laughs) And the, the arguments, I cannot begin to tell you about the arguments that they both had about my Z28 Camaro 1968. They were they were almost fighting over it. You recently like, sold that too. Guys, I'm I'm still here. I have I have recently sold it. I, I loved that car. I loved it. Every single bit of that car. Um the problem I had with that car was that it, it was um 23,000 miles. 
It was absolutely pristine. And I really couldn't use it. Um, the roads here in the UK are just not user-friendly for cars that big, where I live in rural Oxfordshire. Um, <laughs> it was it was just... A Camaro you know, going down the road in rural Oxfordshire <laughs> is its own moment in time, isn't it? Exactly. And you, know, you can't park it anywhere. So anywhere I went, I had to make sure I can kind of drive in, drive out because the car was so original and so pristine. Um, I didn't want to put power steering on or anything. And so I just found myself in a position where I didn't want to put too many miles on. I didn't want to change the car. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I'm actually now not enjoying it. So I've, um, I sold it. I've now bought myself a car, which I'm very much enjoying driving. I had a wonderful trip out um, just before I came away um, to, in fact, have a bite of supper with Ian Callum, who's a Jaguar or X. Jaguar, um, head of design. Um, I bought an Alfa Romeo, Alfa Romeo Montreal. Mm. Um, so a, a really quirky looking car, but uh, so much more usable um, and very much more designed for Europe. Uh, so yeah, I'm blatting around that at the moment. So if anybody sees an orange Montreal, it's probably me. So uh, give me a wave. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, you're a spokesperson for Jaguar e-racing, aren't you? I was, yeah, I was. Um, very much enjoyed that. Um, it was a really interesting um, time because I was involved with um, Jaguar before they actually made the announcement to go into Formula E um, up until the introduction of Gen 4, Gen 3, Gen 4. Uh, you know, we had gone from some pretty basic tech where there were two cars, heavy batteries, to one car with one very dense battery that would do the race, you know, you're now starting to, to get near equivalent speeds. I mean, the tracks are so different that it's very hard to compare a like for like. And obviously a Formula E car is very heavy compared to a single seater in a Formula One car. So Monaco was the only circuit that we could do a, a, back to, a like, um, like for like time comparison but you know they have treaded tires that you know there are a gazillion reasons why they're not as fast but in a straight line wow those things can move um they really are incredible um and it was it was a brilliant series because it really helped push along everything that we are having to learn in a really tight space of time around electric mobility because it's not just you have a battery and you kind of plug it into your motor and off you go. Because things like um, light weighting, lubricants, the, the actual control system that runs the whole, the brain, the way um, energy is, is regenerated and harvested back into the battery, all of these things, cooling, temperatures, all of these things make a direct jump into your road car. There's actually no, there's, there are no other steps. Um, so it's, it was a really interesting time at a point when OEMs were all trying to get product to market, um, product that was going to be usable uh, with decent range without any issues and hiccups. You know, it takes so long for manufacturers to get an internal combustion engine from design to uh, the showrooms and delivered to customers when you're now talking about an entire new drivetrain. You know, it's it's been a, a huge undertaking um, and a big ask. And I have to say, I mean, personally, I think what the automotive industry has done to step up to that challenge has been incredible. Yes, indeed. 
Indeed. Money being no obstacle. What's the one mm. car you covet the most that will a only- GT40. Oh, wait, you didn't even- <laughs> I love them. Love them. Love them. They are, um, yeah, I mean, for me, it's a GT40 because it is the car that you can have on track. You can drive on the road. They are so beautiful. Um, they're perfect for me. Absolutely perfect. Um, I am rather partial to a um, Lamborghini Miura, um, which obviously follows because I can't afford one, which is why I bought my Montreal. Um, but uh, yes, I'm very partial to those as well. So am I allowed to? I didn't even let you get to the end of your question. Oh, no, no, I was just going to say <laughs> following a lotto win or something like that. <laughs> yeah, well, there we go. I, well, I'd buy two. I'd buy a GT40 buy two. And, then, and then a Miura. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Um, going back to the Concours for a moment, not long ago, Pebble Beach kind of shook up the Concours world by inviting American hot rods to participate and in being judged. How long will it be before we see classes for Japanese cars? Well, pretty soon, I hope. I mean, you know, one of the things that we were talking about when I came over to meet Sandra again, um, but actually meet all the team and a lot of the other people who are involved in the show um, in June earlier this year, we were, we were actually talking about the fact that there are classes now um, for cars that weren't even in existence um, when uh, Pebble or, or Marks that weren't even in existence when Pebble Beach first began. Um, and I think it's really important that we always look forward um, in order to look back, if you see what I mean, that, you know, we are, we're looking forward. I think Japanese cars, I mean, there's no question that they are, hugely collectible and hugely relevant as well to the automotive landscape. Um, I mean, obviously, the problem is always going to be space. Um, the longer we go down this automotive journey, the more there is to try and um, encapsulate. So whether they sort of alternate classes or I, I, I'm not party to those decisions, so I can only speculate. But I think it is, it would be great to have um, Japanese cars there as well. I mean, actually, I'm quite partial to some of the, the you know the old Toyotas um I actually really rather like I think as design as objects of design um I think they're actually very beautiful well and when we talk about younger individuals uh younger followers liking certain types of classes of vehicles the Japanese models really come to mind especially those Japanese models of the 90s oh my goodness I mean 80s we were, 90s yeah we we're talking about our 18 year old boys my son would like nothing more than a Mazda with, you know, MX-5. I mean, that is the car. He, he <laughs> is it. <laughs> well, we know, we know what are, we're on our own lawns then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and the thing is, they are brilliant cars as well. I mean, there's, there's a reason why there were so many sold and, and why they've got such a strong market now, because, you know, they were fantastic, are fantastic cars. Um, yeah. So I, I think it is important because, of course, you know, it, when you look at the demographic, and I mean, um, it, it, it's a slight catch-22, isn't it? Because you look at the demographic of the owners of the cars on the lawn, um, they tend to be older, more successful, because these cars are more valuable. Um, but it's really important that we are constantly striving to educate young people, engage young people, um, because that's the way the whole industry 
keeps moving. Um, you need fresh blood, fresh interest um, and fresh perspective. So I think it, it naturally follows that a change like that would need to come along in the fullness of time. Design is just a few final things. Design is emotional. Design is aspirational. Design is universal. Good design is heralded and trumpeted. And in fact, we make heroes of fashion designers, shoe, handbag designers. Why aren't automotive designers held in the same light as a pair of Christian Louboutin shoes? I think cars can be quite scary. Um, you know, it's, it's the one purchase that any of us make in a lifetime that we actually really don't know anything about apart from what's on the outside. We don't know how it works. We wouldn't know how to fix it. You know, you open the hood and, and you wouldn't even know what you're looking at. You don't know what the pieces are that you're looking at. Obviously, there are people who do, but those are the, those are the minority, not the majority. And I think because the majority are just so disinterested, mm -hmm. um, cars have just become an object and i mean and actually this is one of the, this is another reason why i love them because they're such a you know culturally they have changed so much of our landscape as well you know helping people move around and helping villages diversify and whatever but you know people just see them as a means of getting from a to b they don't actually see them as objects of design that can be that's probably the only reason because when you actually get into it and you look at um you know, the history of some of these designers. I mean, they are you know, Pinafrina or um, Batoni or even modern day designers, Ian Callum. Um, you know, that their designs tell a story and they are very much a story of the time as well. Um, there's no reason why they aren't. But, you know, in the Design Museum in London, um, there have been more cars being shown um, and they are sort of starting to come out. But yeah, they're certainly not held in the same uh, same regard, are they, as fashion designers or artists or photographers or anything like that? No one goes quite as gaga over a car designer as they do uh, the Louis Vuitton name, correct? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have a podcast that I want to talk about for a second, the Lady Racer podcast. That's right. Yeah, Lady Racer. That's been a lot of fun. I was just um, going to ask you that. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I've got to talk to people who are independent thinkers, um, you know, like me, people who can look at their, you know, my, my as I say, my journey has been an interesting one because I never planned it. It's not that I didn't want it. It was just that there was nothing to aspire to. And there are many other areas of the, of the world that we live in today where women really are making big inroads um, but also the language that we use when we talk to them needs to be different um, because because it does. Um, I'm not going to get into the politics of why. Um, so it's been a really interesting exercise chatting to people from, you know, people, fisher, fly fishers, um, designers, watch people who make watches. It's been a really interesting exercise talking to various people from outside automotive about their views and perspectives on women in the marketplace, uh, independent thinkers, um, you know, branding isn't, talking to women, branding to women isn't just painting something pink. Um, women are 
we can make our own minds up and we and we like to actually understand, but we maybe like to understand with a language that is just targeted to us rather than say just painted pink. Although I did love the Barbie movie, but <laughs> that's aside. A billion dollars later. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um a final thing is, as as we get to Pebble, what is Pebble? What will this experience mean to you this weekend? And how will you feel on Monday when it's over? Oh, gosh, that's a biggie. Again, I. There's so many things I, I'm so immensely grateful for um, Sandra and her team for asking me to be a part of this and sort of embracing me into their family. Um I think, I mean, I am proud that I'm the first female to be doing this role um, and the first British person to be doing this role as well. Um, I'm, I'm very happy. I'm very proud to be that person. Um, I hope to I hope to be able to engage and talk to people in a way that hasn't been done before. Um, and how will I, I mean, I think, I do wish there's, there's a big part of me that wishes my father was still here to see it. Um, no doubt about that. Um, if, if he made it up there, <laughs> uh, I hope he's looking down at me yeah. and is going to be very happy. Um, I think he would. I mean, I know he loved the event. So I think, I don't think in his wildest dreams, he would ever have imagined that I would be doing this. Um Neither was your mother, who neither was my mother. Grease monkey, and she's you're right, and she's still here. Um, but yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a poignant moment. Um, you know, starting something new, and I hope being part of the family for many years to come. Um, yeah. Well, I'll I'll leave you with this. One of your friends and contemporaries shared with me: Amanda herself is a show of elegance. And fury, elegance, <laughs> elegance in the way she comports herself, well raised in the right circles, and fury in her passion behind the wheel. I couldn't think of a better person to represent the 72nd Pebble Beach Concours d'Elegance better than Amanda Stretton. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you again to my guest, Pebble Beach Master of Ceremonies and international broadcaster Amanda Stretton. And to see my interview with her, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see more than 110 interviews. And thanks for listening. You can follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook, as well as on Instagram at Cars and Culture SXM. Thanks again for listening. You can follow Cars and Culture on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. I'm Jason Stein. We'll see you down the road.